I'm at um, Woodshed Studios. You know, the walls are burnt orange, a nice warm color. There are microphones surrounding the place. It's a piano. Looks like it's out of tune, but I bet I bet it's a it Yamaha, old Yamaha. It's cold <laughs> mm-hmm. in the studio. And you're and Carrie's got his arms folded and he's shivering and I can hear his keys clattering on his belt buckle and now we're here. Now what? Evocative, dynamic, and humorous are the words I would use to describe how Satori Shakur's stories land on the ear and spirit. She wields her life experiences into poetic performances as a professional storyteller. Satori founded the Secret Society for Twisted Storytellers and has been traveling around the world to share her stories. Our interview discusses her journey to her craft, and maybe she'll give us a story or two while we're here. What inclinations did you have when you were young that led you to the creative field? Uh, I was born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, on the east side, on Fisher Street between Vernon and Kerchival, a neighborhood that's sandwiched between, at that time it was called Indian Village mm. and Gross Point, sandwiched between two very affluent um, mm. communities. And my father uh, worked at Ford Motor Company and my mother worked as a maid in Gross Point, Plymouth and other Long Jefferson Ave- Avenue where there were the fabulous penthouses. She cleaned, she was a housekeeper. Um, so when I was growing up, I, I guess I was growing up in, in the sweet spot of education um, in America. But in Detroit, um, music was a value. Art was a value. Um, president Kennedy was the president, and uh, he gave money to the arts and schools. So I started playing violin in the second grade, and I played violin up until the up until the sixth grade. When a teacher told my mother she's got talent, she should have private violin lessons. So my mother bought me a fifty dollar used violin and got me a violin teacher. And Mr. Nelson would come every Saturday to give me lessons. By the time I got to the eighth grade, um, I was playing an all city orchestra. By the time I got to high school, Cast Tech, I was in playing in four orchestras. I was in a jazz uh, string group playing electric violin. I had a red uh, Barkis uh, Berry violin. I was playing on Motown, string parts on Motown uh, recordings. And I was also singing in a three-girl group called New Dawn. One of the members was um, Pinky Reeves, which was Martha Reeves of the Vandellas, uh, baby sister. So we used to dress in their gowns, that their cast-off gowns, and we, we didn't even fill out the bodice, except Pinky did fill out the bodice. <laughs> <laughs> but the rest of us were, like, flat-chested at that age. Um, so I started with music because Detroit was music, music everywhere. There was music. Hitsville, everybody had a dream, you know. Um, the guys in the factory would be on the corner singing, harmonizing. So everywhere you went, there was, there was music. Did you continue your music on into your undergraduate studies? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, when I got to Michigan State University, um, I retired my violin, semi-retired the violin, and, and began to sing. I studied voice. And when I graduated, um, I started singing in little cover bands around Detroit. And then I moved to New York after a pr- producer, a manager, heard me sing, brought me to New York to record an album. 
And um, I did. Uh, and then um, the, the producer ran off with, the, with half of the money that was put up for the recording. Wow. So here I am in New York. And I didn't want to come back to Detroit because New York is exciting. So I started uh, auditioning for The Wiz and all, the, all those things. And then Parliament Funkadelic uh, came to Madison Square Gardens. My friend Overton Lloyd, who's an artist and did the album cover, said, they're looking for backup singers where in Detroit so I borrowed money flew back to Detroit did the audition and uh, a week later I was on stage in front of 10,000 people and there it went wonderful so your background in music led you to that position how did you transition from there to being a storyteller um, I, I was always a storyteller. Right. Music is right. story, dance is exactly. story, <laughs> you know, writing is story. I won a, a writing contest uh, in, in elementary school about Father's Day. You had to write a story about your father, and I won two tickets to Old Yeller. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, it's all storytelling, but I come from a long line of storytellers old black women from the South that just poured stories in my ear as a child. And they weren't uh, uh, highly educated women. They, they were from the South, so they picked cotton. Maybe they were t- got to the sixth grade. Maybe they got to the ninth grade. But their intellect lived in the way they could tell a story. They could make going to the corner store sound like Lord of the Rings. Your eyes would be big. Your heart would be pumping at just at the sound of their voice and the words that they used. So why did you settle on oratorically telling stories as opposed to doing the music so long? Is it because you want to transition and do everything? Is that why? Because you've had the career in music. You've had the career in theater. I had the I had career in music. I build build on the career in um, music to theater, and then um, when I moved to LA, I started doing stand up comedy because I went to look for an agent, and they said you have to do one thing, and I did a lot of things. I wrote, I sang, and so I thought hmm, I'll be a stand up comedian. If I be, if I'm a stand up comedian, I can write. I'll do my own costuming. I, it's my show. And uh, and I began a career in stand-up comedy. I didn't I didn't know whether I was funny or not. It just seemed to solve a problem. And then I discovered I'm funny. When you say solve a problem, do you mean in that in terms of financial, or is that in terms of how you want to? In your terms art of an artist, I didn't know right. how to amputate singing from writing from anything else. I do. They said you have to do one thing put it all in together. Hollywood, but I put it. You could put it all together in stand up because I could sing if I wanted to sing. I could dance if I wanted anything I wanted to. It was a full plethora of self-expression stand-up comedy the only thing i had to do was make people laugh right <laughs> so when i listen to your stories and then i also watch you teach the youth all of that training mm-hmm. exudes like it comes out of you mm-hmm. like obviously like your presence on the stage your presence in the stories and with stand-up comedy particularly it's got to be very hard because you have to make make sure you're, you're telling a story essentially mm-hmm. but you have to make sure that you you get everyone to feel your story and then then make it comical on mm-hmm. top of that mm-hmm. so how do you navigate that how did you come from a place of okay i'm gonna tell this story and i'm gonna I'm make you feel it but then i have to make it comical was that just part of your story well stand-up comedy it's a craft and when I was doing first uh, doing stand-up comedy, I was in L.A. Everybody was trying to get their five minutes set to go on the Carson show. Because if you got on the Carson show, boom, that meant your career was done. So everybody was uh, looking to get on the Carson show. But I was a storyteller. And comedy at that time was bits. Just joke, 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 joke. Uh, I had a hard time in comedy because I, I, I you know, I wasn't, I'm not, I'm an artist, and so they're, you know, artists, they take a, something and they want to go deep into it. So I was exploring 
everything, you know, through when I was in L.A. I was just exploring. But I was I've discovered I was funny because I would listen to my tapes and I'm like, why are people laughing? I haven't said anything, <laughs> you know, and, but but um, communication um, happens every with your body, with your eyes, with nothing, with silence. Tone, right. Yeah. So people are always communicating whether they know it or not. So I didn't know that some of my expressions made people laugh or just silence just looking at an audience. So I I learned the cra- I learned to do bits, the setup punch, setup punch, the component of a joke, but I applied it to a story. So I I kept going so I could earn more time because stories take a little more time and then I got to a point where I just would tell the jokes, make them laugh and then I would say, "And now I want to tell you a story." And people just sit back in their chairs like, and I said, I promise you're going to laugh. I just don't know when. Ha ha, they laugh. And then I, and then I had the freedom to tell the story because you had to, at that time, um, jokes you had to do, you, people had to laugh every seven seconds, every, because it was a Carson set. So uh, I learned how to do that every seven seconds, but. If you can hold people's attention, if they can follow the story, because storytelling really is you feeding the audience images with words. It's a telepathic transmission of information and ideas. So if I can feed you with images, you're making the movie in your own mind. It's an interactive process. So if I'm if I'm telling you I was like the young ladies were doing their stories and she fe- she leaped up in the air and fell down. You can see that in your mind, right? So you're doing the work. I'm giving you the image. I'm think I'm remembering my the image and I'm giving it to you and you you can be the person falling or you can be the person watching you know you you you're whoever you want to be in my story that essentially is how i know when there's a really good story told in all the different forms whether it's music whether it's movies whether it's the oratory um when i'm sitting there and i hear the story and i'm in that place and i'm like seeing the lights i'm seeing the hand i'm seeing the crowd mm-hmm. that's when i can really tell this story is really well told and then mm-hmm. i i feel it mm-hmm. that's what i was talking about before um, so what inspires you to make your stories what is where do you get your stories from i get my stories from life all my story I, my stories are true and they're personal stories they're my my experiences of life my observations of life um what i've learned uh, what what uh, journeys I've taken and and it's like I do I believe our mission at the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers is global to connect humanity, heal and transform community um, through the art and craft of storytelling. So we believe that storytelling like organic fruits and vegetables is organic connection, healing, therapy, celebration of humanity in, in community and society. So I know that if you're alive, only human beings can tell stories and only p- human beings who are alive can make and create stories. So it is a gift to live and to learn and then to share what you learned. Wisdom. Now, are your stories particularly from your experience, yes. or do you tell stories from? I can tell anybody's. I can tell. I can tell your story better than you can. Ooh. Can you tell my story? Would <laughs> better you gotta, than you can. Can you give me a quick one of my my story? I don't know your story, but <laughs> if you tell it, tell it to me. I'll tell it back to you. If I tell you. it to you, you tell it to me. Yeah, I I, t- I I can tell any kind of story. Uh, you know, once you can tell your own story, you can tell any story because your own story reveals you. Mm-hmm. And most people are afraid to reveal themselves because they think people are judging them and people are judging them. But if you come out on stage and stand up there and tell your truth, the only thing they can really do is admire you. 
That's very true. <laughs> That's real. At the end of the day, they're like, wow, they're That's... doing something I, I couldn't do. I'm afraid to do or. Yeah. So how do you then get other people to inspired enough to tell their own story? Um, I listen. I listen to to their story and then I ask them questions about the story. You know, I ask them because, see, listening is a generosity. It's a kindness. It's it grants being to other people. I believe listening is a revolutionary act. You know, because if you because it takes something to listen, you're not just hearing sound waves coming at you. You're not just hearing somebody's voice. You, you're actually getting in. You're giving up your opinions, your judgments, your assessments, how you think things are, whether you agree or don't agree. You're letting all that go and actually going and being in someone else's world and asking them questions from inside their world. And when somebody knows that you're listening to them, it, there's an automatic trust that happens. And inside that trust, I can become a midwife and I can midwife your story. I can bring it out of you because it's 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 a beautiful thing. I, you know, it is. And I saw that when you were working with the ensemble as well. So is that the, that's the, the skills that you brought out of them? You listened to their stories and you were mm-hmm. just like, OK, so what type of questions particularly do you kind of ask? You just ask. Where were you? Is that a kind of question you ask? Uh, well, there's a craft okay. to, to everything. There's a, a craft, and then there's it, it, at the highest level, it's art. Um, but there's a craft, and and you you got to paint the picture for people. You mm. know, you you don't just you you if, when you get in a car, you, you there's things you got to do. Adjust the mirrors, you know, put your seatbelt on. Is an environment. So first, you create the environment, right? So you heard the young ladies with their stories. There was an environment. I'm in my kitchen. Mm-hmm. I got my good smelling candle. So now you got you're in the kitchen. You see the if you want to go, you're in. It's so a who, what, when, where. You got to set the people up because people don't float around in space. So if we're telling the story about today, I'm at um, Woodshed Studios. You know, the walls are burnt orange, a nice warm color. There are microphones surrounding the place. It's a piano. Looks like it's out of tune, but I bet I bet it's a it Yamaha, old Yamaha. It's cold <laughs> mm-hmm. in the studio. And you're and Carrie's got his arms folded and he's shivering and I can hear his keys clattering on his belt buckle and now we're here. Now what? So you called me now, my keys clattering on my belt buckle. <laughs> you called me out on that. Um, so I wanted to go to uh, what specific moment in your life do you think you identified that that was going to be, storytelling was going to be the way you wanted to live your life? On uh, 2011. Mm. Can you tell that, paint that picture for us, uh, tell that so, story. So, yeah, it's May 2011. And uh, it's three years after Wall Street crashed. I'm sitting on my couch. I am running out of money. Most of my investments has cr- crashed with Wall Street. And I need a job. But I don't want a job. I want to do what I love to do for the rest of my life. So it scares me that I'm just sitting on my couch not looking for a job. And it scares me that if I got up and looked for a job, I might find one. You know, it's not that I didn't want to work. It's just that I didn't want to work for anybody that would hire me. Mm-hmm. But fear... It has a way of testing anybody's faith. And I got so scared, I started applying for jobs everywhere. Walmart, U.S. truck driving school, uh, script supervisor on a CC Dynamite porno film. Yeah, because Craigslist will give anybody hope. Now, I didn't get any calls back except from Macy's. Macy's wants to do a drug test. They want to do a background check. Fine. What Macy's didn't understand is that I make a better employee after that hit of medical marijuana in the morning. It's medical for a reason. I'm menopausal. 
I am a menopausal femme fatale without her meds. Because I know that if you put me in customer service, I might have a mood swing and a hot flash and swing on you. But I detox and I get a job interview at Macy's. Now, my gym is right next door to Macy's in the mall. And when I finish my workout, I notice that I have forgotten my shoes and the makeup that goes with my outfit. So I figure, okay, I'll buy a pair of shoes at Macy's, then take them back after the interview. Because I can't afford $59.99 for some cheap shoes made in China. So I plot to take the rug route because I don't want the bottoms to get dirty because I do not want any mess to go get my money back. So the guy brings me the shoes. I can't even get my toe in. My bunion is cussing me out. That's when I have a mood swing and, and snap on the guy. Let me tell you something about Chinese people, young man. Chinese people don't know shit about shoes over size seven and a half. And if you're going to ship the shoe jobs overseas, ship them to a country that knows something about big feet. I'm an American. I wear a size 10. And if I could afford it, I'd fly to Taiwan right now and whoop that sweatshop and take her job. And then I storm out of the shoe department. That's when I catch a glimpse of myself in the mirror. I'm looking militant. I look like a cross between Cornell West and Lil Wayne. I got to fix this with some lipstick because nobody's going to hire me, anybody looking like this. So I go to the makeup counter. The lighting is terrible. So I got to take the work makeup girl's word for it. Mm-hmm. You look good in that color. So I'm on my way up the escalator. The wall is nothing but mirrors and light. I look like I'm wearing black tar number nine on my lips. That girl lied to me. Now I'm walking through the doors of personnel looking like something out of Predator 2. Shaking my keys to let everybody in there know I ain't homeless and I got a car note. So the little guy that's uh, interviewing me looks like he's almost 13. We sit down for the, I apologize for my gym shoes. We sit down for the interview. He asked me some questions, stupid questions. Like, is it ever okay to steal from your employer? I'm thinking, is this part of the drug test? Because who in their right mind going to say yeah? (laughs) He asked me, is it ever okay to, st- to uh, if you catch an employee bending the rules or leaving early, what would you do? I'm thinking quite naturally I'd approach that employee and beg them not to tell on me. Then we get down to the bottom line. How much does this job pay? He said, well, it's an on-call job. It pays $7.40 an hour. I'm like, $7.40 an hour? You mean to tell me Macy's can't kick in another dime so I can get almost two gallons of gas to get to work? Then he asked me, do I have any conflicts? I'm thinking, I'm conflicted I'm even here. I'm <laughs> conflicted I would have to work eight whole hours to pay for them shoes downstairs, and I'm a conflict away from walking out of here. But I don't say that because I need a job. So I said, no, no, <laughs> no, no, there are no conflicts. And I leave, quite certain I'm going to get the job. Three days later, I get an email from Macy's. Dear Miss Shakur, we regret to inform you we cannot hire you at this time, but we'll keep your application on file, dot, dot, dot. <gasps> oh, my God, this is my last chance. What am I going to do? How am I going to live? And then it was like this sense of relief, like the universe was telling me, you better do what you love to do for the rest of your life because nobody is going to hire the incredible menopausal hulk. So I placed my bet. What did I have to lose? I'm going for it. I'm going to do what I love to do for the rest of my life, no matter what. Satori Shakur, everyone. That was, oh, man, I sat back in my seat for that. That's, that deserves an applause. If I had a little applause, I'd give it to you. I don't want to clap in the mic. That was fantastic. Wow. And so that was that a story already created before? That's the story I lived. It's the story that I you tell. Told it. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. the story I, I tell because uh. it's it's hard to do what you love to do. 
And I'd been building my career for years. And then some knuckleheads up in Washington want to play with my rent, want to hold it hostage in a little scheme to extend the Bush tax cuts for the wealthy. I I invested in this career because nobody supports an artist. Right. You can go be a lawyer. They got scholarships. You know, but to strike out to to do what you want to do is that's an entrepreneurial thing, which is fine. Right. But when you have done it and you've sacrificed and you've invested and you spent money on acting classes, music classes, you've you've told your mother, no, I'm going to do this. Get a job. No, I want to. And you finally get to where you want to get to. You've and then and with no fault of my own, Wall Street crashes because some big, some people I don't even know are messing with the economy. Mm-hmm. And now I've got to give that up. And now right. they're calling me lazy, 99er, don't want to work. I'm thinking, you're calling me lazy when you're getting ready to take a break from doing nothing from the last time you took a break from doing nothing. Preach. Don't want to work. <laughs> Preach. Oh, well, <laughs> wow. My mother, my mother before that, her mother, her mother before that, we work hard all our lives. Mm-hmm. You know, I earned those benefits. Google me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I had to take a stand for my life. Yeah, that was a dynamic story. Absolutely, I really felt the 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 ups and the the pits of that, and I think that's also really relatable too. Which I think what makes your storytelling so great is people see that in themselves, saying, "Oh, I apply for this job too, but like, why do I? Why am I working here? What do I need to do? Like, what mm-hmm. decision do I need to make right now? This is mm-hmm. a pivotal moment in my life, and so mm-hmm. it's good to see that it, it, it's it's a message to say that there's something about making the decision to do what you're passionate about and following through with that mm-hmm. because it's going to be much more fulfilling for you in the end. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, you know, I have friends and stuff who talk about jobs they've had that made a lot of money but didn't really fulfill them. So mm-hmm. just to go to, to your point about following that passion is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I want to shift back now and I want to talk mm-hmm. a little bit about um, the Secret Society of Twisted Storytellers. Mm-hmm. So your, your nonprofit, the Society for the uh, Reinstitutionaliz- Reinstitutionalization of Storytelling, mm-hmm. um, is TSSOTS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that the only subsidiary underneath that, or do you have other programs well, that you the, support? The, the uh, nonprofit was formed originally to offset the cost of the live production. I see. You know, we didn't sell the, the amount of tickets that uh, we needed to sell in order to pay for everything then we had a nonprofit where we could get sponsorships donations and and like that um, but since the nonprofit I've been doing storytelling workshops I've worked I just did a partnership last night with the Arab American National Museum working with those storytellers and we did um, Hikayat last night it was a, they brought in chairs you know it was, it was overflowing with people mm-hmm. to tell stories of Iraqi of Arab Americans for for, for Black History Month mm-hmm. so I, I work with Cranes Communication, New Detroit, all different um, commu- uh, organizations, WDET, to help people craft their stories, just as I've done with heritage work, uh, Her- heritage works. Um, I've uh, I work so I do we do workshops. So the nonprofit really is ex- is expanding okay. to include, um, the, and then we program. So once we develop mm-hmm. stories like we've developed these young ladies' stories, then when people people call churches call. People call, can you send a storyteller? Well, what 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 are you speaking to? Well, we're speaking to this. I have a database of, of storytellers and stories that have been developed, and I call, hey, can you go um, over here and, and share a story? And yeah, so it's, it's, it's a service. I look at storytelling as a service, a community service. 
Can you tell a little bit about the birth of the Secret Society of Twisted Storytelling? Mm -hmm. So in 2011 and 2010, a friend of mine introduced me to the moth. I went to Cliff Bell's downtown Mm -hmm. and I was blown away by, by, oh, they're they're telling stories. That's what I do. They're telling stories. They don't have to make anybody laugh, you know, but they're, so I went back the next month and I told the story and I lost by like a ninth of some real you know, but I love, I love this. So I said, once I finish with this play, I'm going to come back when, cause I want to go to the grand slam. Cause I want people all over the world to hear my stories. So I w- went back in May after the sh- play closed and I won. And then I went to the grand slam. This is 2011. So I crafted that story about Macy so that when I went to the gym theater and I told the story that somebody would give me a job. I figured I'd get a job like in nat- nature pat- natural patch or some health food store where I could work with people because I didn't want to work corporate. It was too soul-sucking. I, I um, did the show. The Moth asked me would I host the event in Ann Arbor, the new event. And I'm like, yeah, I love that. So my commitment was to do what you love. And I'm like, wow. That's, and then I made a bet. I bet you I could tell a story and make more money than working at Macy's all day. <laughs> and that's what happened. So they started flying me around the country telling stories. And I was on stage in Boston in 2012. I'd lost my mother in 2005. And nine months later, I lost my son. So I told the story for the first time at the Fillmore in Detroit, six years later. And, uh, and, I, and this was the third time I was telling the story. And I felt myself being healed. I mean, 900 people is sold out. I could hear a pin drop and each one of them was taking a piece of my story, a piece of my grief, and they made me lighter. But I had this profound experience of being heard. You know, we don't, we're not heard. We're not listened to as human beings. People go, yeah, yeah. People don't have an experience of actually being listened to and heard. And, I, and when I was getting that kind of listening, I felt that the space between myself and the listener was magical. Anything was possible. I felt everything. And I said, everybody, everyone in the world should have this opportunity to be heard no matter who they are, what they've done, no matter how harshly they've been judged, they should be heard. And I come back to Detroit. I had no money. I was living in the basement of a friend's house in Ferndale. And I had this epiphany, this calling. You lost the mother. You lost the son. You lost your finances. You lost your home. You lost. And so has Detroit. Detroit's lost many mothers and sons and daughters and water shutoffs, even democracy. Yeah emergency manager so hey if the storytelling could begin a process of healing in me could it do the same for Detroit was the question so I started in 2012 with the first event and every month we were popping up because the walls were exploding and finally we got a offer to come to Juanita Moore at the Charles Wright invited us to come there and so we've been producing storytelling every month except January and August at the right since 2013. We've won a Knight Foundation, um, Knights Art Challenge. Um, we just got a Macaca grant because we're, we're, first we had to figure out, you know, the, every, the, the community, the world had to figure out, well, what is this? We never heard, what is this, Dr. Seuss? What is, so we had to show them videos of what we were doing so that they could see what it was, you know, because storytelling, a person standing on the stage telling a story is, it wasn't, it, that was new. It wasn't poetry. It wasn't spoken it word. Was, no, it was actually completely. its own self. Right. And then in 2017, I got the Kresge uh, Literary Arts Fellow. 
in storytelling the first time. So it was a mission of mine to establish storytelling as a distinct and separate art form than other spoken oral traditions. And so you spoke a little bit earlier about the healing powers mm-hmm. of telling the stories. Mm-hmm. Is it the vulnerability that you feel on stage and interacting with the crowd that give you that gives it that healing power? You were saying like your grief helped you mm-hmm. heal. Could you explain a little bit about how that works? Well, how you believe that works? Well, we're 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 a body. We're you know we're mm-hmm. we're a spirit mm-hmm. that wears a limitation called skin and bones right, right. A cavity. And, yes yeah. mm-hmm. and 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 our spirit is much bigger than our body and if we're f- any kind of thing that happens to our spirit a painful situation uh, a joyful situation our instinct is to share it but the world says we're going to judge you if you do so it stays inside and festers i don't know whether your mother whether you ever got a cut or something you put a band-aid on and your mother said that band-aid off let the air get to it mm-hmm, now you know mm-hmm. you have the air you got to let the air get to your story air get to your pain because your story is really just it's it's a package of of your life it's it's your emotion it's your thoughts it's who you are and if you keep it inside who will know you is, is that synonymous kind of with like therapy and when you yes. just like having yes. conversations? It's, it's, it's organic therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's mm-hmm. what it sounds like. It's I know, built into humanity. I think communication, well, in the arts in, in general, we talked about dance and music and poetry and all that. Those are all different ways of communication. Mm-hmm. And that, in a way, embodies a medium for people to express their stories. Mm-hmm. And so I... I I feel like everyone has a bit of creative in them. Yes, everybody. Because everyone has a story to tell mm-hmm. in them, right? And mm-hmm. so it's just finding that medium, and you chose to do it mm-hmm. oratorically. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Culture Cipher Podcast by Heritage Works. This activity is supported in part by the McGregor Fund, the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan, the Michigan Council for Arts and Cultural Affairs, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Additional support is provided by the Kresge Foundation and the Fred and Barbara Erb Family Foundation. To learn more about Heritage Works and the work we do in the community, visit heritageworks.org.